That was fun. I don't remember my hands making that sound. And uh, yeah, today we are going to talk about Matt's most recent tirade about 1918's Warren Harding. Oh, God. And uh, we're going to also talk about a guy whose name I can't pronounce, even though I've been trying to do it for six months. Yeah, welcome to the Poor Pearls Almanac. I am your host, Elliot, here with Andy and Matt. Um, Andy has never really been hooked on Phoenix and or able to read good, so we're going to make him the host today. Never been to Arizona. No, not hooked on Phoenix. Hooked on Phoenix. Is my saying that right? I think it's phonics, isn't it? Hooked on phonics? Oh, I'm literally reading what you wrote it. That says Phoenix. So phonics is spelled with a C, not an X. Listen, Elliot, what am I? <laughs> the, the spelling police? I, apparently not. You're, you're going to jail now. Good. Good. I want to go to jail for spelling. Speaking of which, going to jail. This episode brought to you by The Wall. Thank you, Donald. Or Pink Floyd. You decide. Oh my god, this is... This is, has gone off the rails. What this are is rails? Like... There's only one kind of rail that <clears throat> is seen. Ask me on a Friday night. <laughs> oh my god. Okay, so who are we talking about this episode, Andy? We're talking about my boy, Solo. Okay, See, I, I did it. Yeah. I, I, I mean, it was his nickname, but I did it. That's right. Uh, I don't think he's technically your boy if you have trouble saying his name. But Zolo, I mean, it's pretty sweet because it sounds like a cool name in Star Wars universe and in real life. I, I like it. Yeah, it's a great one. And the, the long one, and I'm, I'm sorry, my friend, my good, good friend. His full name is Efraim Hernandez Zolo Kotsi. Beautiful. Right? I, I am just... It's a beautiful name. And you did, a, you did a good job, even though you can't read good. I can't read good. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, can't read well. Can't I can't read good, Elliot. That's what I said. <laughs> it's what it's written right there. It says good. So our buddy Maestro Zolo, he's a forgotten hero of regenerative agriculture, even though I cringe at that phrase. He was a botanist, and um, today we're going to give him the spotlight he's deserved for, uh, for all these years. Fantastic. Finally bringing justice. Okay, okay, cool. So let's kick this off by setting the table as usual. How far back in time are we going here today on this episode? Oh boy, you really want to know? I did ask. Where are we going? We're going to a land long ago. You're literally going to start it out like Star Wars? A land before time, in fact, Elliot. The year 1913. We start in the community of another town that I will mispronounce. San Bernabé. San Bernabé. Uh, that was perfect pronunciation. And honestly, it's not as bad as I expected, and I can't tell if I'm disappointed or relieved. I don't know how to feel. And if, if we didn't get it right, just um, start commenting on the Instagram. Let us know. Just cancel me now. I mean, you wouldn't be the first to try. Since we're not trying to make this a four-hour episode, I'm going to very, very briefly cover Solo's youth. Then... Uh, some of the pieces and some of the names that will sound really familiar to our listeners will get briefly covered to frame up this really fun, exciting, and inspiring story. All right, Andy, hit us. All right, so our boy was born in the throes of the Mexican Revolution in 1913. Efraim Hernandez Zolocotzi did not live in the town of his birth for a very long time. He was born in San Bernabé, Amax, I'm not going to be able to say this, Amaxac. Amaxac de Guerrero, Guerrero de Guerrero. I can't speak Spanish. Like, can we just put this in Italian? Um, a, a small village. It's so close. Amaxac de Guerrero. There we go. A small village about 100 miles east of Mexico City. At the time, one of the poorest states in the country. This small town was uh, basically an agricultural village. Majority of its residents were farmers. Ephraim's father, according to one person who had met him, was short in height and had very calloused, powerful hands that gave away his occupation as a peasant farmer. The eastern part of the town's thin and sandy soils allowed the farmers to grow basically only rain-fed maize. Now, Zolo never gave the exact reasons why his family left in 1913, but his very short autobiography makes it clear that part of the reason was religious intolerance on the people of the family's hometown. For the next eight years, they lived in several places, including Mexico City and Puebla, but ultimately went to the United States, and he was in New Orleans at the age of 10, just in time for the Great Depression. Woo! Yeah. Now, he moved to New York City, and at the time of Hernandez's graduation in 1932, 
he earned one of the highest graduating marks in the school's history, and he left school with the plan to become an electrical engineer, although soon after starting college, he switched his studies to agronomy. So I feel like there's probably a reason for that. Yeah, I don't know. People go to college and then change completely, like, who they are. I mean, how many straight-edge kids in high school go to college and have alcohol poisoning the first week because, you know, they didn't practice, get crucial practice at knowing their limits? Or about the folks that are undecided because they don't have any real-world experience to help narrow the field of choices and find themselves with a new major every semester for three years. Seen that. And then there's kids that they literally just make coffee and cigarettes their whole personality for like all of college. And I think that's kind of strange too. So college is really weird for me and I'm not entirely sure it's worth it. And I don't think that's what this episode's about. So sorry like about all that. But Yeah, here we are. Did, did he change his mind for a reason? Cigarettes. Was his personality coffee and cigarettes? Yeah, absolutely, that was it. He was like, you know what? I'm a coffee and cigarettes guy now. No, um, what they actually... get stick and pokes and a beanie too, a little <laughs> nose piercing, and a bad beard. Yeah, no, I don't think so. I mean, he does Do not. Do we like... know? You ever watch people continue to play hacky sack even though they're not good at it? Because I was college too. It was fucking weird. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of things were weird in college, and there's a time and place for those weird things, and it's not college. So actually, for him, what changed his decision was actually during his senior year. He took a trip back to Mexico and went to visit his father, who hadn't gone to the United States with him. He'd been living with his his mother. No one in the town knew who he was, you know, because early 20th century, and uh, there was, you know, no phones in the town. There's obviously no Zoom, no FaceTime. Well, there, there was actually like 10% of rural villages in this time frame in Mexico even like had phones at all, like available. So like, you weren't getting much except for the occasional letter. Okay, so they did have like letters and maybe like a post office every couple of towns or something like that. You think his dad read much? And that's the thing. I, I don't even know if he could have read if somebody wrote a letter. Um, so this was a, like a really formative experience for him. So wait, he hold on, hold on. He literally had to go on a quest to go home and like find his dad. Yeah. Like the people in town didn't know him, so he could have moved, but like nobody knows. I mean, he left before he was 10. Oh, so true, true. he showed up. He left a boy, came back a man, like some really cheesy fucking movie. The point is that like going there and having this experience was really formative for him. It showed him how basically the campesinos, the peasant farmers of Mexico, like his father, were really disciplined in the ways that they managed their lands because of the limited rainfall and the poor soil quality. And he noticed that the intricate ways the farmers would overcome these really, you know, common natural obstacles like minimal water being in, you know, marginalized lands like mountainside plots and um, some of the nuances that came with like rain-fed agriculture. What was most important, though, was he witnessed the conditions in which millions of rural Mexicans, particularly those in the north central area that was drier, how they lived. And um, seeing that prepared him for what was going to come when he continued his career. Hmm. So it was like, yeah, this is really a... Uh coming of age story of putting together of it's like for us. five goes west except five goes back home to see his dad who lives in the west or something it's a bad example five goes to see the old cornfields <laughs> yes five finds maize mm -hmm. i'm just picturing like uh five was like eastern european i think he was from where was five from russia i think it was russia and I'm just imagining uh, a Russian mouse in Mexico. Like, that sounds uh, like a fun movie. I mean, that's kind of what Five Will Goes West is, isn't it? Like, he goes to Western United States, which was basically Mexico at that point. Ah, uh, true. Holy shit. I gotta watch that movie again. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So he w All right, so he went to school thinking he was going to be, like, an engineer to solve problems. But then coming back home and seeing the way things were in the real world and in Mexico... He realized there are different ways to to approach and solve problems. Yeah, this wasn't an easy thing for him to do. So, like, one of the challenges he faced was funding. When he decided to go to school for agronomy, he didn't have the money to make the switch. So, even though he had, like, scholarships to go for electrical engineering, they were not available when he decided to make this change. Now, this process meant he went on to go to state school which at the time in the early 1900s was less of a college, more like a secondary tech school type thing. 
And uh, he got some really great hands-on experience and transferred his credits to Cornell. Cornell was uh, a top ag school in the country at the time, and it's still you know pretty well respected in that area. And uh, many of the faces he met at Cornell are involved with what we see play out years later in Mexico. Cornell was basically the place to be. Their dean was Liberty Hyde Bailey, who is hugely influential in the permanent agriculture movement that we'll talk about at some point in the future in the United States, is probably responsible for Gregor Mendel's work on genetics to have been basically rediscovered after being mostly ignored by the scientific community. And he advocated for making science accessible to the general public. And I'm hoping next year we'll do an episode on him. All right. So I guess you're going to put that on the list. The list. I can no longer tell if you guys are teasing with me or actually happy to put that on the list. I'm actually interested to talk about that. I was going to say Andy will never know because we'll be freaking stardust before we see the end of it. So then we'll make it a priority list. Can we have like a, I mean, a priority list than the regular list? A second tier list? Yeah. Like the A celebs, B celebs kind of thing. Like is Liberty Hyde Bailey like an A celeb, B celeb, or like Netflix plus celeb? We'll, we'll get that going. We could get that going. An A list list. An A list list. <laughs> we could have so many sub lists. So many. You don't even know. The A list list. I like it. So Zolo, when he finally finished graduating from college, told his classmates his goal was to go to Mexico. He said, and quote, I'm going to help General Cardenas. Now, General and future President Cardenas, and I'm probably not giving that name the appreciation it should be, was a left-wing politician who at the time sold himself as a left-wing populist who wanted to return land to the peasant class and to nationalize the major industries. What years are we talking about? So we're in 1938 at this point. Cardenas was president from 1932 to 1940. We'll be talking about the early 40s in a moment because this is really important for how things play out in this story. Cardenas was basically a, a pretty cool guy, it seems like, at least from my limited understanding. He's still the considered the most popular president of the 20th century in Mexico. Now, he's not perfect, but he did some really great stuff and was willing to change when he learned new things like protecting indigenous cultures. Anyways, he immediately moved the summer after graduation with the goal of applying his education back home, meaning Mexico. Unfortunately, there wasn't a whole lot of work for botanists at the time in the country. And while working at a bank, he had the opportunity to meet farmers and learn some traditional practices in the region. After that bank was closed, Hernandez landed a position with the Office of Foreign Economic Administration, OFEA, of the United States Embassy during the war. Oh my god, this guy is just another connected ex-banker. <laughs> Carpetbagger. Um, no, but I, I guess, you know, going to school in the US and speaking English has its perks for him. Yeah, like you only have to learn or use 75% of a language to be considered proficient. So C's get degrees, baby. That is what I relied on so much. If anything describes America, it is that right there. C's get degrees. Yeah. C's get degrees. Hell yeah. And then they record videos in their trucks, sell them on TikTok. Or start a podcast. Or start a podcast. Those are the worst ones. So, um, you know, World War II, not a great time, right? The U.S. government basically offered to buy anything Mexico exported since they were supporting the Allies. And it meant that those same goods didn't end up with the bad guys, the Axis powers, right? Hernandez becomes technician for OFEA, helping foster the production of castor oil. To promote castor oil, you know, something that was used for manufacturing hydraulic fluid and jacks and brakes on war machines and all the other, you know, equipment that was feeding the uh, war efforts, Hernandez traveled to a number of states to study oil-bearing palms and to Mexico's Pacific coast for other species. Okay, so they went hunting down plants to refine more. L lube the war? Yes, they yeah. were trying to lube the war. Correct. That's the worst way you could have put it. That was really? kind of my goal. Yeah. How bad can I make this? Oh, God. And it's lubed. Perfect. Yeah, that's it's pretty bad. I could see that war effort post there. The old propaganda. Yeah, right. A lube up for the war you gotta effort. Gotta lube up the war. <laughs> or don't a, use your lube, save it for the war. A big phallic oily missile just ready to go. Yikes, that's terrible. A girl picking a castor bean? I don't... Leaning over like a pinup girl? Oh my god, I don't... 
I'm glad you guys weren't in charge of the like 1940s propaganda. I'm I'm just gonna say that. Listen, I don't know. Listen, it would have been a problem. We would have had everybody in the war. It would have been the too pro- effective. Yeah, the problem would have been we would have been, been no- too effective. Nobody back home to actually find the plants. We needed somebody to find the plants to lead the war. So let's talk about Solo because we're fucking losing our minds right now. Jesus, yeah. So after the war, he was given a, a recommendation letter from Mexico's Secretary of Agriculture. This helped him land a position as a germplasm collector, particularly of maize and beans, with the Mexico Agricultural Program, or MAP. This program was funded through the Rockefeller Foundation. Yeah, so, I don't know. I don't like it. I don't like, I don't like it. Is this what it feels like to get triggered? Yep, that'd be it. Yeah, so that might sound familiar, because we, uh, we talked about that Rockefeller that Foundation, didn't we? So this is before that. This was the prequel to the prequel to the Agra episode. We're, we're talking 40 years at this point before the first Green Revolution attempt in Africa. This is like the OG, I don't want to say Green Revolution, because it's not necessarily the first one, because the United States is the first one. Oh, say it in Spanish. Verde. No. Verde. Revolucion de Verde. Revolucion. I, I need a cigar to say. That was French more than... Sorry, sorry <laughs> yeah. everyone. You sorry That's son terrible. of a bitch. So during this time, the, the Rockefeller Foundation helped him go back to school at Harvard, during which he finished his education and dedicated the rest of his life to agriculture in Mexico, specifically working to defend the campesinos from the very people the Rockefeller Foundation were trying to support with their corn research. Oh, man. Holy shit. Did I say say it in Mexican? I'm sorry. <laughs> Did you? It's fine. You're black. I might you can have. say I that. I meant say it in Spanish because it's from Mexico, and I just realized I probably said say it in Mexican. I'm an idiot. I mean, oh, is, ref- that's is referring to the... I mean, people sometimes refer to English as, or so, Americans sometimes refer to English as American. Yeah, that's because Americans are dumb, and I, I just don't, I don't. Are know. you or are you seized not American? Get, seized get degrees. Hey, not by choice. Seized get degrees. <laughs> that is our tagline for this episode. The poor pearls almanac, new bumper sticker. Seized get degrees. Bees get honeys. <clears throat> or I mean, it's got to sell. I, at least <laughs> that's got to be at least average, right? That's what is, isn't it? Anyways, the obviously I'm, I'm gonna think on this one. Yeah, I, uh, we're close. Yeah, Matt, Matt, we're putting to work right now. Now, the thing about Zolo in this new cool job is that he wasn't the only person that the Rockefeller was hiring to collect corn. Nor was he the only one they were trying to indoctrinate into their program of what the future of agriculture had to look like. And I'm assuming that vision wasn't great, right? Why were they interested in this corn at this time, anyway? Well, I know you know the answer to that question, because in my interview with Helen Ann Curry, we chatted about it extensively, but ultimately for folks who haven't listened to that interview yet- And you should. And you should. Fears about the limits of corn because of limited genetics to draw from meant that finding all the native strains of corn, cataloging them and putting them in you know some kind of storage facility would provide the resources to deal with new diseases and pests as they came up. Okay, so based on all of that, it doesn't sound like it ends great. Not as bad as you might fear, but also not as good as you hope. So uh, if you go listen to that episode, uh, you can get some of those details because we can't really cover that right now. But um, point is, our boy Zolo gets this really sweet gig and he gets to do the thing he likes the most, which is go around and meet indigenous people across Mexico and talk about how they're growing corn. Now, he loves it. Like he has like an absolute fucking blast like getting to meet these people that like live just like his dad. He's like reliving like there's some serious Freudian shit probably going on here. Pretty sure he's looking for his dad. Yeah. Yeah, he he's living his best life basically. It sounds pretty nice though. Oh wait, yeah, okay. It, Se- seeds bring the bees. Seeds bring seeds. See bees we'll get it. We'll keep working on it. Yeah, put that on the back burner. Let it simmer. <clears throat> So, um, anyway, so the point is, our, <laughs> what? Sorry, it was funny. Thank you. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm saying, my ass I'm off saying, over I'm, here. I'm, I'm saying the attempt was funny. All right, we'll get, I'll keep working we'll, on we'll, it. We'll get there. The voice. classic grandma burn right there. It was really cute how hard you tried. Mm. We'll get there. It's okay. Back to our man Zolo. Obviously, given that he was taking this opportunity to collect corn, 
not to just collect data, but to like get to know these people and get like hyped up about the thing he cares about. He had a little bit of a different relationship with the work that they were doing than a lot of the other scientists that were you know, doing the same thing for the Rockefeller Foundation. Many of them go to these communities with the intent of, you know, quote unquote, educating them from their backwards ways and then collect the old seeds and then start telling them about the new and better varieties and, you know, synthetic fertilizers and all these things. And wait, so was all of this like funded by the Rockefeller Foundation? So directly and indirectly. So the Rockefeller Foundation was able to point to the successes in the United States from the 40s on, from the early 40s on, and said, basically, you guys can have this abundance too. The idea was that they would bring these Mexican agronomists to see the crops and basically say, hey, if you want this, uh, this is how you do it. Yeah. And then post-World War II, it's hard to say that you know, modern agriculture wasn't the solution to all of our problems. Basically. Just got to grow more food with science. Yeah, and like they were, you know, the the early stages of this like post-World War II, applying petrochemicals seemed like a miracle. Like it was just so much faster and better at growing food in a short period of time. It was really hard to argue with that evidence. And now also we have to remember that we have this like socialist president in Cardenas who um, had recently stepped down from presidency in 1940 and his successor that he supported was a moderate, which I know, shocking, and I think also speaks to why he was like genuinely a good dude. And the idea was to explicitly point out the need to make true democratic policymaking, where it's across the aisle. Now, unfortunately for Mexico at this time, that also meant liberalizing the economy. And given the benefits of post-World War II partnerships with the US, it was kind of hard to say no to the Rockefeller Foundation. Yeah. Rockefeller Foundation. Just say no. <laughs> Just they should have said that instead of don't do drugs. Don't yeah. accept Rockefeller money. I, th I think they did do that, but Oh, I'm I was probably doing drugs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh so the most commonly used of these effective methods of agronomists taking science to peasants was using an agricultural extension system based on a model from the United States. So if you know of the extension schools Here's the Mexican version. By 1949, young Mexican men had traveled to the United States where many of them witnessed the U.S.-style extension. They'd seen the cooperative efforts between county extension agents and land-grant universities, and they basically brought that home. Now, Salvador Sanchez, one of those who had studied U.S. agriculture and had by the early 1950s gained a position of influence in politics, was most responsible for ushering in modern extension schools in Mexico. Sanchez is a really interesting character. He was a botanist who absolutely fell in love with basically everything American, especially the science behind the agricultural system. And uh, he was really good at playing politics, and he worked his way up to being governor of the state of Mexico. Okay, so it turns out there's a state within the country of Mexico also called Mexico. So News it's to a, it's me. A, it's like in... Go ahead, like, you can have this one. No, I was just going to say it's like New York, New York. Oh, I was going to say, it's like a new Mexico for you. Uh, no, not <laughs> not nearly that but groundbreaking. I'm okay. too simple. Sorry. I'm a Sorry. simple guy. He's a simple kind of man. So, all right. This guy ran his entire campaign on being like the agricultural guy. He's basically like Pete, the rat-faced Buddha judge, being like, listen, I'm a rat. I know transit systems. <laughs> Put me in that goddamn tunnel. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Give it up for Mayo Pete. Mayo Pete. Trying his, well, I don't know if he's trying his best. He's doing something. Yeah, he, he's, he's, he's alive. He's there. So our boy Sanchez was big into restoring pastures, stopping deforestation, and collecting like tons of data. Point is that he was like a typical technocrat that I think we can kind of like dial in systems based simply on data, right? So like if we can understand the data, we can just like, you know, maximum production. And part of this was getting the, you know, understanding the extension system and getting it set up to help farmers and um, learning how to use these new plants and crops and livestock and fertilizers and all these different things that are going to revolutionize agriculture, right? And the best way to sell this was through like demonstration plots. Think like the World's Fair, but like for improved corn varieties and like heat resistant potatoes. Yeah. World's Fair seems fun. I'd go for that. The World's Potato Fair. World's Potato Fair. Yeah, I mean, that sounds like a blast. I'd probably go too, because you know that place has good booze. The vodka is flowing. 
probably. No. I mean, vodka and poutine. We're in Mexico. You guys don't even know who you are. Potatoes, Elliot. Potatoes. Come on. Come on. Right. How many do they grow? They don't grow a lot of potatoes in Mexico, do they? Well, now they do because of these heat resistant varieties. Mm. I thought they had yuca. I mean, they also have that. But so, uh, point is, I don't know. Yeah. None of us know. We never know. We do not do enough research because otherwise I'll spend six months researching one episode and it'll take me. 45 hours to tell one story. 1.7 million tons in 2017. Is that actually accurate or are you just shooting? That's a lot that's of from, tons. That's from potatopro.com. Uh, that sounds legit. Are you going <laughs> to tell me potatopro.com is wrong? They know potatoes. They do know pot- If they know anything, Potato Pro knows potatoes. And I'm, the pros I'm willing know. to go on record on this podcast I'm going to find out that, like, it's, like, funded by, like, a... Uh, big, big potato? Big potato. It's a... Yeah. <laughs> big spud. Big maybe, spud. Maybe, maybe we should take maybe we should take a break. <laughs> oh, my God. No. Yeah. Hey, we're taking a quick break in the episode to remind you that you can get a whole lot more information from poorproles.com. On our website, we have access to our supplemental reader for the podcast, which provides more depth and context, as well as thorough citations for all of the stuff we talk about in the show. You can also sign up for our newsletter, which updates you about limited releases, such as various nursery stock that we sometimes sell through the Poor Proles website, as well as updates about new merch that we have. You can also support the show through that website, poorproles.com, where you have access to our Patreon and our Substack to get early releases for articles and episodes. Now, if you enjoy the show and are just looking for even more audio content, go check out Tomorrow Today, which just wrapped up season one, or tune into the Gastropocene, which is a project of myself and Dr. Aisha Khan to discuss the way our diets have driven the Anthropocene and what it looks like to use our diets for good. Now, back to the show. So in 1953, President Adolfo Ruiz and the Minister of Agriculture, Gilberto Flores, decreed a national emergency plan to increase maize and corn production. Now, I know what you might be thinking. Traditional farming methods weren't working. The real problem, though, was that manufacturing in Mexico had increased and workers left the countryside to be wage laborers. Now I feel like we're spending a lot of time not talking about solo. I'm setting the stage. All right. I mean, I wasn't calling you long-winded. You wouldn't tell Picasso to hurry up. I would. I would. Did you? <laughs> I tell him I don't know what it is. Did you just compare yourself to Picasso, Andy? I'm like Stickasso. Like, you know, stick, nature. Nope. You're like, now I gotta add this as well as the other thing I'm working on. You're gonna have some stress trying to come up with these puns. Welcome to my world. All right, well, for the last one, it should have been Bicasso. Bicasso, yeah, but we're not talking bees today. No, we're not. We're talking Efrem Hernandez, and I know how to add Icasso to that. If you were me, you would. I have enough on my plate, Andy. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> okay. Anyways, the point here is that we, we see this tide changing from the folks like Sanchez, funded by the Rockefeller Foundation and the Mexican government, under the guise that if we do everything the way the Americans do it, they'll get to live in that capitalist opulence, right? And in the process, these extension schools precluded any serious study of local knowledge and any consideration for factors of the communities of, in which the peasant farmers worked, such as, you know, culture and history and the way they've done things. I mean, they did want to do things the American way. And what better way than to uh, erase everything from previously? Now, and I really want to point this out, they did this all really very quickly. The extension schools were modeled and put into place and then basically reformed agriculture in the span of less than five years, changing things from meat production, corn production, creating a potato industry that didn't exist before. Up to 1.7 million tons. 1.7 million tons of taters and working to reforest parts of the country, predominantly the South. Now, Sanchez was governor starting in 1951 and we're only 1953. So it's only been a few years, and within four years from 51 on, or maybe 49 on, I don't remember, and within four years, fertilizer use increased five times, two million trees had been planted, and farmers were adopting the new improved seed varieties. Okay, so on one hand, the Rockefeller Foundation was spending money collecting and storing land-raised corn varieties. Then, on the other hand, 
they were basically trying to force farmers not to use those same varieties. So basically just like, give me your corn and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to grow it and you can't grow it anymore. All your corn belong to me. All your, <laughs> all your, all yes. your corn are belong to us. That's such a good one. All your corn are belong to us. Yes. See? So now that they own the seeds, they're selling back new varieties that they can then change through breeding thanks to those land race varieties. Is that right? Yeah, you're correct. Sounds like the American way. Steal and then sell your own creation back to you. It truly is amazing. It's just like, they wanted to be American and they just fucking nailed it. Now, much like in Africa's Green Revolution, the results showed improvements in production, but not at the scale that it was sold to them. They understood that they were playing theoretically the long game, that this was like a system that they were going to build. And a lot of what they were trying to do was not necessarily create the food system today, but show young kids the future of farming so they'd be more willing than some of the the current farmers who were not willing to change and get these kids to understand the benefits of these new varieties and techniques. And it didn't take long for what Sanchez was doing in the state of Mexico to be carbon copied across the entire country. Okay. So I feel like all major changes we've talked about always are designed by a handful of people with a whole bunch of money who know how to run a good PR campaign, but don't really know how to get results. It's all about optics. It really is. And they had these extension schools to train farmers. They had buy-in from the government. They had the model sites. They had radio programs to talk about agriculture. They even had like films to highlight successes from these programs. It's literally about like PR, like 100%. And this is, I think, something that's really beneficial in terms of like how we have to understand the benefits or what we try to do and the power of having good PR. You know, we always want to focus, especially like folks on the left, on this idea of like being, you know, the most ethical, whatever. Instead, what we really need to do is be better at marketing the things we are doing. And we are absolutely losing the battle on marketing by like a very, very wide margin. And really the only area that we have success is like memes. I mean, losing the battle in marketing, but I see like there's commercials everywhere. Everything's an ad. Yeah. And none of them are for my goddamn memes. Unless you're listening to this podcast, I guess. Aren't the memes and just an ad for this podcast? I mean, yeah, basically they are. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Everything's an ad. Every now and then you sprinkle in, We're a, by the way, we're a podcast. Yes. And people forget and then they, then they unfollow us when they find out we're a fucking podcast. Yeah. <laughs> basically, yeah. It's like the Simpsons episode with the music video and it's like the belly dancers with the fucking US Army like in reverse or some shit in the background. Did I date myself on that one? Oh. What? I have no idea what the fuck you're talking about. What oh, are you man. talking about? Are you having a stroke? No, Did there's a toast? Simpsons episode that um, they're like into this music video and Bart's like obsessed with it. And like they realize if you play it backwards or something, like it's actually like come join the army. And it's like the dance moves are like him like marching and step and shit. Mm. Yeah. Cool. Good, Sounds good awesome. episode. Sounds awesome. And that's exactly what we're talking about. It's all about that marketing. And um, unsurprisingly... All of this uh, was funded by, you know, obviously the Mexican government, but like, who else do you think wanted to fund this, this whole Buy American Seeds project? Uh, You already said it, the Rockefeller Foundation. DuPont? Uh, Gates wasn't around yet, so his, I don't know, dad, I don't know. (laughs) DDT products. Oof. Like that DDT. That's tough. Shell. Shell? Like the oil company, yes. Like, they they probably made the fertilizer? Yeah, as well as, like, a bunch of other tractor and other, like, general agricultural equipment companies, like, you know, John Deere. And again, they funded a bunch of stuff geared at the next generation of farmers, basically stuff like the Mexican equivalent of, like, 4-H clubs here. So for our non-American listeners, 4-H is, like, farming 101 for kids, and it's usually, like, meet some sheep or raise some chickens or something like that. Yeah, and every every uh, 4-H house that I drive by is decrepit and run down. And it looks like people shoot at it as they drive by. At least one of them did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> at least one. That's rough. Wait, what's a 4-H house? Do they just have, like, a clubhouse? Yeah, it's a clubhouse. Oh, man. So, I guess all this is interesting, but isn't this episode supposed to be about Zolo? 
It is, but I wanted to frame up the conditions of what happened in the 1950s to fully understand why he was such a unique actor during this time. You know, we can see all this money getting spent around him, basically selling the American dream from like a number of angles, from every radio, newspaper, academics, where the equipment was coming from. Everything came through the United States and talked about how great all of this stuff was. And I mean, it seemed pretty great because like it was productive. He was even paid and got hired by the Rockefeller Foundation to go do the thing he wanted to do, which is go collect those unique corn varieties, right? Okay, so he's getting paid, living his corn rock star lifestyle, you know? While all this is going on, yeah. And because he was that English-speaking brilliant guy that was at the top of his class, everywhere he went and was well-connected at Mexico, he was also able to get all of the best assignments for the Mexico Agricultural Program, that corn collection project. During this project, he collected 2,000 different samples of corn. I know that number seems like a lot or a little, depending what you're measuring that against, but at the time, it was one of the biggest collections of germoplasm in the world. With this collection, along with a few colleagues, Zolo had made a massive map of Mexico on the floor in um, the lab where they were keeping it and placed the varieties where they were collected on the map so they could actually watch the evolutionary patterns of corn across the country. Man, that is... That is pretty amazing. It's pretty cool to see. Like, he, he, it's, it's literally like this, like, 50-foot map, and they just put all of the corn, like, thousands of corns, like, across it where they collected it, and you can just, like, watch the size and color change throughout the map. Are there pictures of it? Uh, it's in a book. Yeah, that must have been pretty, pretty cool to see, though. Like, a mosaic of where you're from and, like, the basis of... How your people got there by eating and growing that. That's that's pretty pretty heavy stuff. At this point, Zolo was still pretty young, right? And uh, he was basically a baby among some of the folks that he was working with. His partners in this research were both a geneticist from Harvard and the director of the Office of Special Studies, which was a joint partnership between the Mexican government and the Rockefeller Foundation. Needless to say, being alongside these folks quickly made him like a nationally recognized figure in agriculture. Yeah, he was like a niche corn star celebrity. The best kind of celebrity. Elliot, that's that is bad. I know I know the puns are rubbing off on you, but that that one was pretty bad. Was it a pun? I mean he really is a corn star. He True. was a corn star, Matt. Have some respect. Yeah, I gotta put some respect on that name. Well I said corn rock star earlier, but he doesn't he's not he doesn't study rocks, so True. If he was corn. studying the soil underneath them. Yeah. If I said if I said he was a hardcore corn star, then we'd be getting into specifics. That would be touchy territory. Yeah. It's like a celebrity that forgets they're a celebrity. You have to be like in to recognize them. And then there's like a thirty percent chance that the only reason you recognize them is because they have like a cult like following. Yeah, it's like me and Tom Wessels. Like, if I saw him on the side of the street, I'd be like, holy shit, it's Tom. And, like, no one else would be like, Tom who? Yeah, it is. It's exactly like that. So, anyways, the Rockefeller Foundation gives him a scholarship to go to Harvard and to get his master's degree. Now, his thesis, Maize Granaries in Mexico, is a study concerning the evolution of the maize granaries and their importance to social cohesion among indigenous civilizations. I couldn't find it online, so if anyone has access to it, I'd love to read it. Oh, dude, I know how you can get it. I tried ResearchGate. Uh, by getting that money from these products that we're going to sell on this commercial. We're selling, selling out. Hey, we're taking a quick break in the episode to remind you that you can get a whole lot more information from poorproles.com. On our website, we have access to our supplemental reader for the podcast, which provides more depth and context, as well as thorough citations for all of the stuff we talk about in the show. You can also sign up for our newsletter, which updates you about limited releases, such as various nursery stock that we sometimes sell through the Poor Proles website, as well as updates about new merch that we have. You can also support the show through that website, poorproles.com, where you have access to our Patreon and our Substack to get early releases for articles and episodes. Now, if you enjoy the show and are just looking for even more audio content, go check out Tomorrow Today, which just wrapped up season one, or tune into the Gastropocene, which is a project of myself and Dr. Aisha Khan to discuss the way our diets have driven the Anthropocene and what it looks like to use our diets for good. Now, back to the show. 
Man, I bought so many of those. I must spend like half my paycheck on the thing that was advertised. And now I can go buy that paper if I can find it. I mean, I bought a bunch too, but now I feel like it's just money laundering when I do it. It is money laundering when you do it. We're all doing the laundry, as they say, Elliot. The long con of starting an ag podcast is money laundering, I guess. <laughs> Everyone knows that. So anyways, in uh, 1946, Zolo got the opportunity to lead a new project in Chiapas to basically document as much plant material in their use for MAP. This was the first major project by Western-trained botanists in southern Mexico. And if you don't know, this is one of the most diverse regions in the world. So did he get to see the like milpa systems we've talked about actually in practice? Exactly. His description of seeing it, like he was absolutely in awe at the incredible knowledge and um, what he described as the maximum potential efficacy of these soils based on an exquisite depth of knowledge. In his words, in quote, the disadvantage of this system of agriculture is that even under the best conditions, only 10% of the agricultural land can be planted during the year. Deviation from this cultivation method in an effort to increase the area planted during the year would result in a rapid erosion and destruction of the soils, end quote. So even with his background in modern agriculture, he basically concluded that there was no possible way for modern agriculture to compete even remotely with what he was seeing um, in regards to soil degradation or soil health. Exactly. And that's like wild, right? So he spent his time mostly documenting the milpa system instead of collecting seeds, even though he still did manage to document over 500 species. Hernandez saw a milpa's efficiency in different terms from conventional measurements. The important thing for him was the ability of its practitioners to continue its use over a long period of time and cultivation that promoted an ecological equilibrium between the needs from humans and the natural conditions. This guy sounds like a real nut. Can you imagine that? The sustainability of a system is perhaps more important than the money that you can rip out of the ground. What a crazy guy. Yeah, hey, I got a podcast you can listen to. Communist, Matt. Probably. <laughs> I mean, considering how, the reason he went back to Mexico, yes. That was absolutely <laughs> his, his politics. So this was a really defining moment in his career. His research, uh, while he still did what his job required, steered towards gathering more Campesino knowledge. What was particularly valuable about him is that he was very humble and he was very willing to learn about the decisions that these Campesinos were using. In this humility and willingness to learn, they were very open to teaching him about what decisions they were making and why from corn types to um, its uses and the you know religious background and contextual decisions in planting one corn or cultivar over another. Now, when he moved into academia later on in his career, his comfort and collaboration with these campesinos led to his students describing him as, well, eclectic. Honestly, reading some of the descriptions from his students is like, he had some like big Hemingway energy. Yeah, probably drunk on corn liquor, living like a corn star. We know that. Just having fun. I want to make a running with the bulls joke out of that, but I cannot come up with anything. I'm sorry. You think he did it backwards? Running with the hulls. That's all right. It was a B. What do you got, Elliot? Uh, the joke from Half-Baked, uh, where, uh, what's his name? Kenny's in prison, and they ask him how it is, and he said, have you, have you ever run backwards through a cornfield naked? <laughs> it's fucking really funny <laughs> <laughs> yeah so c's get what do we decide c's get degrees degrees c's that's, get degrees that's how i'm a college graduate b's save the b's d's all right too much okay time. come back to me at the end you're gonna have to think on that if we put it if we put a beat to it we could put that on youtube and it'll get likes just keep rapping, Matt. Oh my God! It's got to auto tune gotta it. Come up, Isn't that what come, they do? Come up with it off the top. No, we just got to do it. Got to do one take. Freestyle. Yep. Oh, okay. Here we go. Here we go. No. <laughs> I mean, I did so did that on Tuesday night. I was pretty drunk. Freestyling. Oh yeah. Maybe I'll maybe I'll drop one one of these days. Let's get some uh, freestyling on the live. On the live. On the 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 uh, the Twitch. Yeah. The Twitch. Get that flow going. 
It happens. Yeah. You know what else happens? Our boy collecting site samples. Thank you for bringing us back. <laughs> so, um, yeah, he he was an eclectic teacher. And we're going to talk about this more in the next episode. But basically, he'd like, go to a site to collect samples. And like he would just be like, hey, driver, let's go this other way because I've never gone that way. And uh, they go like eight hours out of the way because there was no like fucking map quest, right? So they're just like driving, trying to figure out how to get back. They'd crash at a hotel, like, or they'd spend the night with like no hotel at like some small town and end up like spending the night with like a family that takes in like a bunch of like nervous college kids and like drinking tequila with a bunch of random families and shit. You know, typical night when you're a botanist. Man, my botany classes were weak compared to this. Yeah, I'm pretty sure every class I've ever taken was weak compared to this. No, no, that was just your report card. I mean, my report card was also weak, but actually, weren't. It wasn't bad in college. It was just high school. But anyways, the point is that like Zolo had this like habit of going very much against the grain. Now, when the map program wanted to find the right varieties of cotton to increase production in arid parts of Mexico, for example, Zolo suggested instead to let the native worthless plants as well as some of the introduced species take over and to graze those landscapes with goats instead of trying to grow cotton there. Hell yeah. And. Um- all about the goats. Goats, we're going to be eating a lot more goat in the future, I think and hope. Yeah, goat is good if you know how to cook it. Yeah. That is the key. Barbecue, goat slow is... barbecued goats are pretty bomb. Barba is that goat? the bumper sticker? Goat is good? Goat is goaded? <laughs> Beef is good, but goat is better. Just really... Goat is one of us. Alright, we're gonna... Yeah. All your goat are belong to us. Mm. <laughs> how old is that meme now? I don't uh, know. The video game is from like 1980 something, so. I don't know what you guys are talking about, to be completely honest. I just know the phrase from somewhere. Yeah, that's oh. from a video game. Cool. So, um. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was brutal. <laughs> uh, oh, so- man. Andy's too good to talk about video games. He's too good to talk about the. He thinks it's a meme. <laughs> I don't know any of these things. You know this about me. Oh. I'm. I am culturally illiterate. Mm-hmm. What I know in agriculture makes up for the fact I don't know what Star Wars is versus Star Trek. We know this. You really not? We've accepted this. I feel I, like you I know do. One of them's a TV show, right? Star Trek? That's the TV show one, right? Yep. That's about as much as I know. That's the one where the guy's got the weird glasses. Yep. Right? Yep. I feel like like those two things also apply to the new Star Wars. I didn't know there Is this the one with Donald Glover? That's about as much as I know about the new Star Wars. It's not Donald Glover, my God. <laughs> okay, I lied. <laughs> All right, so the point was that, like, the Rockefeller Foundation was just like, hey, we're trying to find ways to grow cotton in Mexico. And he was basically, go fuck yourself, get some goats. Honestly, like, a very, like, sane response to anything. It's like, do you want to cut mean- your lawn? It's like, no, go <laughs> fuck yourself. I'm going to get some goats. <laughs> go fuck yourself. Get some goats. <laughs> yeah. And, that, you know, totally what a typical botanist says. Do you plan so on you- paying your taxes this year? No, go fuck yourself. Get some goats. <laughs> like, you know? I mean, yeah, we, we that is something people should say more. So, it, like, at the same time, just to give you an idea of kind of what he, the things he would do, he also wrote a letter to the director of MAP. Uh, who is his buddy from that research project? So he, you know, he had a pretty good relationship, right? And he suggested that MAP modify its mission since although crop production had increased, populations had increased at the same rate, and it was worth investigating the non-agricultural effects. Oh, this is his word, sorry. In quote, the non-agricultural effects of its wonderful achievement in agricultural technology in Mexico, end quote. Okay, so because they didn't really get a net gain, the results sort of went, you know, unsung. There were none. Yeah, there, yeah. there were none. There, there, were was none. Just, there was no net gain, so it just sort of leveled out. It was even. Not, nothing to really hooray about, even though it was going well. Yeah, I mean, basically, his point was like, we've done all of this stuff, but like, people are being fed just as much as before, so cool. I'm glad we spent all this money. And like, he knew how to do that in a way that like, he was basically like a troll. Like, he was trolling this dude that he knew was the head of this department, but he, he was big enough that he he wasn't untouchable, but, like, he was big enough that he could do it and get away with it, which is pretty cool. So he's stepping on the guy ahead of him, stepping on his toes? Yeah, let's go with that. He's a toe-stepper? Toe-stepper. 
Anyways. Yep. <laughs> okay, Matt. So I thought this was going to be a quick episode, but we're actually only like a third to halfway through his story, and we haven't even gotten really into that academic career when he basically instigated and then stopped national protest. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like this story's going to get wild. I hope it does, because that was a pretty long preamble. Nobody ever called you long-winded, and if they haven't, I'll do it now. Yeah. You fucking, Let's go with you that. fucking windbag, dude. We were like an hour. We're an hour we, into... Are we kidding? How, how many episodes? We're an hour it, into Solo, and you've, you've talked about him for maybe 10 minutes. To be fair, like 10 minutes of that is going to get cut out because we were trying to find a picture. So yeah. that's not my fault. That's still a long episode. Also, and then there was you Matt. think no one's ever called him a windbag? How many episodes deep are we on this? No, like, Elliot does obs- like on a weekly basis. Come on. <laughs> I don't Come know, on, man. I just, it's, damn. Listen, I told you a couple episodes were done. Next week we'll talk about, or no, we're not dropping these in weeks. I think we're dropping them like every couple days. So that Damn. people don't have to wait. See you in a couple of days, guys. Nice. See, in a couple of days, we're going to keep the story going. We'll keep it fresh. Keep it hot. Give you something yeah. to listen to when you're doing whatever, whatever you're, whatever you're doing when you listen to podcasts. You know, we're here to help. We're here to help. Talking about corn, all corn. Yeah, all I the got time. a pun for you, Matt. Mm-hmm. Oh Jesus Christ! Andy's corny. Yeah, that's yeah, that's just on, speaking Elliot. truth. Yeah, you're better than that, Elliot. You you can be better than that. I have faith in you. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> you say so alright guys this was fun can't wait for next week I keep saying next week next episode Dom play the music this is getting pathetic <laughs> yeah we're the poor proles poor proles poor fuck yourself get some goats get some fucking get some goats, goats. you did hold on my phone is vibrating. It's my mom. <laughs> Does your mom want to be on the pod? No, she doesn't know it exists. We're going to keep it that way. Has your mom ever used a computer? She is a computer addict. I remember she avoided it for like years when we were younger. Now she's got a laptop that she takes with her places. I'm sure she checked her email once and now she's like, oh yeah, I'm connected to the internet. She uses email like people text. Yeah, I can and see I'm that. Like, wow. Mom, what are you doing? And she'll be like, oh, I'm waiting for to respond to me like you are looking on your phone at your email like come on you can cut one out there's a simpler way to do this Uh, my parents will find out about this podcast when i'm dead and or have a book deal one of those two fair enough i can't wait (laughs) i'm sorry i just can't wait for you to explain to (laughs) that you somehow turned talking into a job can't wait to tell like listen you know how we're always talking about the the world's going to shit guess what I actually get paid to talk about how the world's going to shit now. <laughs> yeah, we could get him hammered and start his own podcast. I oh would, my god, I would, I would listen to that. Everyone would listen to, f- and then he would say something really racist, but like in an endearing way.